Lord, we thank you this morning that we have an opportunity to come and open up the Word once again in freedom and joy. And uh, I think I speak for all of us when I say we so look forward to Sunday when we can be uh, with your people, when the Spirit is among us uh, in uh, multiplied ways and, and the various giftings and everything and personalities that you've suited us with to magnify yourself and give glory to your, your name. And to bring people closer and closer to your holy servant Jesus. And so we would ask that that takes place here this morning, here at the worship and throughout the day through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. The book of Jonah. Uh, so <clears throat> I've titled this A Sour, Silly, Sulking Saint Set Sail on the Sea of Grace. A Sour, Silly, Sulking Saint Set Sea on the Sail of Grace. Or I was going to keep it much briefer and just call it Jonah the Jerk. Because right? Jonah is by far the biggest jerk, I think, in all of Scripture. And, and maybe that sounds hard, but in my mind, Jonah is just a jerk. He's a believer, and there are many jerks among us believers. I count myself as one of them. Or maybe we could even call it, maybe we'll call it Hope for a Pharisee. It would be another good title. Yeah. But my favorite remains, A Sour, Silly, Sulking Saint Sets Sail on the Sea of Grace. So, what do we know about Jonah? Well, oddly enough, his, main, his name means dove. Which, I mean, you know, that'd be like naming me tall. You know, it's like, just, it's, it's just, nothing about Jonah's name fits with dove. Because you know what? Identify at six foot. Right, I can identify as six feet. Uh, Jonah was, uh, Jonah's an 8th century BC prophet. He prophesied under the reign of Jeroboam II which uh, Jeroboam's reign was around 793 to 753 B.C., and also simultaneous to the prophetic ministries of Hosea and Joel. And he prophesied mostly to the, ministered mostly to the northern kingdom. Um, the majority view is that this was written after the exile. We don't know who wrote it, uh, but that it was probably written after the exile. Well, this, again, this people would say, well, it was written pre-exile. I think it makes more sense to have been written post-exile because what we see in Jonah is a little bit of a sort of microcosm of what we see the problem of Israel become over the years. Even after they're back into the land, you know, they, when, when they come back to some extent, right? It's not the same great temple, etc., etc., and then it gets destroyed. But we'll see in Jonah what we see to be problematic with Israel in general, and that is the sense of national pride and ethnic pride and the sense of exclusivity that carries all the way over to the New Testament. When you see that the, even in Acts, when you see that they had to get the council together in Jerusalem because there was a sense of really, and you see it show up in Galatians, you basically got to become a Jew if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. If you're going to be a Christian, a real Christian, you got to be Jewish. So that just carried on and on and on and on. And unfortunately, dispensationalists today, I think in a certain ways unintentionally, contribute to that when they continue to point to Israel as having some sort of a special blessing from God, apart from the blessing of the gospel, the sense that the, that the church is, again, this parenthetical thing that happened in the ministry and the purposes of Jesus, but that there's still Israel is still God's blessed people, and they're not. Yes? How do they compensate for the fact that there's a new covenant? Uh, well, they deny that there is a new covenant. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah, right? So that's the main yeah. thing, right? No Messiah, no covenant. So, so you're thinking about Christians, not Yeah. No, no. no Jews. Jews, uh, well, I understand it. pretty hard to see. The veil is still over their eyes. Yeah. Yep. Jesus is, is not their Messiah, right? So no no Messiah, no new covenant. You know, Hebrews tells us all about that, right? He is the mediator. He's the, he's the new covenant. He is the new covenant. And the only other place we see Jonah show up is over in Second Kings. 
and I'll just uh, I'll just pop on over there for a moment. Uh, chapter fourteen, verses twenty-five to twenty-seven, where we find Jonah mentioned as the son of Amittai and uh, from the land of Geth Hefer, and <clears throat> says here in twenty-five to twenty-seven of that chapter. Um, he restored the border of Israel. Talk about Jeroboam II. He restored the border of Israel. By the way, Jeroboam II was a very evil king. He followed on all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So uh, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. And that's the only place that he shows up. So uh, Jonah had prophesied that Israel would regain all of the Davidic territory to its lost northern neighbor, Damascus, uh, the Assyrians. And that's a very easy message to deliver, right? <laughs> I mean, if you get to prophesy that, that, hey, northern Israel, you're going to take back all the land that's been taken from us. Because it wasn't pleasant, as we'll start to see a little bit too, under Assyrian vassalship, uh, to be sort of subject somewhat to the Assyrians as northern Israel was at various times and in various ways. And, and I think... You know, there are things that we find very easy to do in the will of God. And there are other things that we would rather run away from altogether. And I think that's one of the hints that we see going on here in Jonah as well. And, you know, God's will uh, that we love others, right? That's very easy to do when others love us. But it's not so easy when he wants us to love our enemies. And we just, we got to be real about that. Because our first impulse is not to love our enemy. And our enemies... Even though we may not, I mean, we're not out in the field of battle fighting them, but we, we have a lot of enemies in the culture. There are a lot of people that are attempting to suppress a Christian expression. Those people are our enemies. Well, they're the enemies of God, and they're the enemies of the cross, and they're the enemies of Christ, and there are churches, so-called, that are enemies of the cross, that are synagogues of Satan, as John says and reveals to us, shares with us through the Revelation, right? So, there are many liberal churches as well that would be included in those that are enemies of the people of God. And they're enemies because they want to prevent the message of the kingdom from advancing the way that God defines it, right? So, we love them, right? And again, you don't have to look very far. We can make each other an enemy, all right? We can make each other enemies in a variety of ways just by sort of the disagreements that we have. That can happen. You set up a uh, you set up a potential uh, you set up the capacity for making enemies with some of those that are closest to you, which is not all that unexpected, really. I mean, the biggest problems that we see in the world are things that happen within families and the people that are closest to us. You know, when I'm walking down the street, walking the dog, I smile and wave at every car as it goes by. You know what I mean? Whereas some people, if I knew who they were, I'm not. I don't really mean this, but there's an impulse that we might want to have not to. Somebody you really with nasty to you and hurt you in some particular way and they drive by, you're not going to be waving and smiling and blessing them under your breath. Right? So, Israel was a vassal of the Assyrian king and paid tribute to him. So a vassal statement, you're sort of under their control to some extent. You've got to pay him, you got to pay him taxes. You have to sort of submit to certain things that they say and you get to leave a semi-autonomous life. But the Assyrians were the most brutal of people. They were vicious. They were known for slowly killing their enemies and making them suffer. They would tear their arms and legs off one at a time and they would leave just the right arm so that when they left after destroying, they could shake their hand and smile at them as they walked away. But they were just brutal, brutal enemies to fight. 
Um, yeah. Right? Uh, by Israel's standard, the population of Nineveh was uninstructed and morally naive. Jonah saw here good reason to despise the Ninevites, where, as in God's eyes, this was a factor, this moral naivete, this uninstructed people was a factor in God's grace to them. This was a factor that increased his compassion towards them. That's from uh, one of the, I have this big fat commentary on the Minor Prophets that I got some years ago. Um, one of the authors there, this um, uh, lady author, Joyce Baldwin, made that observation, which I thought was very good. The very thing that we see, because it, it's, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? We know that what some people do and think and believe, it's just bad for the culture. And it's just bad for people, on the one hand. And we know the book of Romans says that they know that those who do such things deserve death. And yet at the same time, we also know that they're blinded by the God of this age, right? So there's this sort of, there's this sort of double-sided coin to how we look at and see what the people in the world are doing. And we've got to be very careful not to develop a Jonah perspective. I don't disagree with what you're saying, but mm. they're also responsible. Oh, absolutely. That's why I mentioned, it says in the book of Romans, those that do such things know that they're deserving of death. So yeah, let me just, so since you asked, just to clarify that, absolutely, they know full well they're responsible. And they know they're responsible. Right, they don't want to know that. And yet, and then I have the other thing that sort of brings a little, helps me keep that in balance, when we see Paul say, you know, when they're sons of disobedience and children of wrath, and such were some of you, you know, but you were washed, right? Not that you washed yourselves, right? But, but that you were washed. And so I always, ideally, I want to keep that balance, uh, Although I, I enjoy the um, the dopamine release that comes with the <clears throat> that I get from yeah. from resisting them more, right? <laughs> which we shouldn't. Unfortunately, we do. Right? We we do habituate our bodies to enjoying the tension too much and enjoying the the, the banter and the in the, in the fight. Yeah. God's designed us in a certain way. You know, we gotta we we gotta work with that. Um, so this is just like a bizarre story. Filled with irony and really almost satire. Uh, this is such an amazing book. Um, it's comical to see. I mean, so we all know that Jonah's just known for Jonah and the whale, right? Which, of course, wasn't a whale. It's a great fish. But, but that's what everyone thinks of when they, when they think about Jonah, right? And it's just reduced to the, some absurd thought of just the, this huge, huge thing that could swallow a human and a human could live in. But, but it's about so much more than that. You know what I mean? Um, and it's comical to see just how Jonah conducts himself in the prophetic office. You know, he disobeys. He doesn't pray until the last possible minute. He's a hypocrite, right? He's, his, his preaching causes repentance and he sulks about it. And he prefers death to seeing Nineveh rescued. And he's a prophet. That's something wrong with that, okay? And, and so over the years, as this has been looked at, and it, there are many that have tried to insist that this is, if not an allegory, then at least to some extent a parable, but really that has to be resisted, and it has to be resisted really because, because of the way, because of the way that Jesus refers to it, okay? So Jesus had plenty of opportunities to present plenty of parables, and he even took, you know, when you talk, when you think about the parable of the vineyard dresser that Jesus gives, that is something of a play on a parable that goes back to the parable in Isaiah, where God says, what more could I have done? You know, I built a tower, I put a fence around it, I, my beautiful vineyard. So Jesus sort of played on that when he gave his parable. But there's nothing that Jesus did that in any way sort of plays on the parable of, 
uh, of Jonah if it were a parable. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus bases the most fundamental thing. If Jesus is not risen from the dead, then our faith is in vain. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verses 40 to 41, For just as, because they were, the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him and said, give us a sign. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment of this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. Behold, something greater than Jonah is here. A parable cannot function in that way. A parable cannot be the basis upon which you, you assert a certain thing is going to happen, and it's going to have this particular meaning, and then there's going to be other consequences from it as well. We never hear, for example, um, so, so when you think of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. Now, some, some insist that's historical and some insist it's a parable. But assume for, just for the sake of discussion that it's a parable, you never hear people say, well, just like Lazarus ended up in hell, there's going to be no hope for you when you're done. You know what I mean? Uh, that was real. I mean, there's a parable or there's a way of looking at it that's real, right? And to reduce this to a parable, uh, even though there are things in it that... Um, even though there are things in it that you would look at and say, wow, that almost seems like it must, might be allegorical for something. It isn't as if, as if God can't do some, two things at once. And I'll mention that a little bit more. But it's not a parable. This is a real thing that happened in history. Okay? Um, yeah? If you really think of it, I, I don't want to get you off track here, but if, that was, if Jesus did not quote that from Jonah and then some scholar for 2,000 years... <laughs> Uh, made that spiritual application mm. uh, from an interpreter perspective, uh, probably would have quite a few scholars who say, no, no, you can't make that application. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, if you really think of it. Yeah, no, you're probably right. We have, uh, we are, we have to remember too that this is very hard for the world because we are in the throes increasingly of a materialistic, you know, what's called um, metaphysical naturalistic worldview where this, all there is is the physical. That's all there is. There's nothing but a closed system and everything is strictly physical. There's nothing imposing itself upon this closed system and everything can be explained by biochemical processes that happen in the brain and the body and things like that, right? And, and, and that science is the only way that you can get information, right? That you can't get information from any other way. That science is only, the only reliable means of relaying truth. Uh, which again, I'll always repeat this, there is no scientific test that can prove that. <laughs> the very thing that they... So again... So um, the chapters each have their very distinct purpose, right? All four chapters, everyone has a specific purpose and storyline, each contributing to the whole. Say chapter one, Jonah disobeys God and ends up with pagans that genuinely fear God. <laughs> All right? Yeah. Chapter two, Jonah prays from the belly of the fish, acknowledging his distress, but not really his disobedience. Chapter three, Jonah preaches to Nineveh and Nineveh repents. Chapter four, Jonah is miserable that Nineveh repented and <laughs> raged that God would show grace to them. That's why I say he's a jerk, right? Uh, in his commentary on Jonah, uh, Stephen Davy apportions his study of this book this way. See Jonah run. See Jonah sleep. <laughs> see Jonah swim. See Jonah preach. See Jonah reap. See Jonah pout. <laughs> that was, that's pretty clever, right? Because uh, it just reminds you of the little books, right? See Dick and Jane run, right? See, see Spot chase the ball. And even so, though, as my title states, there, there is a sea of grace that Jonah sets sail on. And though he doesn't like it, it is a grace that God has for all people, not just for the Israelites, not just for Jonah. Um, 
So, <clears throat> Jonah's, I'd like to say he's Jonah going to learn something. You know, remember, the, remember our Old Testament survey, hermeneutic key that we're going, right? Uh, God's righteous rule of his kingdom, uh, man's response to God's righteous rule, and then God's response to man's response. We see that. And, I mean, this is like a great way to understand how does that hermeneutic work in looking at a book of the Old Testament. This one might be one of the easiest ways you can do that with because it's so blatantly, uh, you see exactly how someone, you don't see little things going on behind the scenes and, you know, uh, we have to wait until the story fully plays out. What you just see is, Jonah's kind of like, <clears throat> it moves quickly, almost like the way Mark moves quickly in the New Testament, right? Of all the Gospels, Mark is like this, boom, 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 boom. There's one thing after another after another happening. And all of them have uh, have a lot of meaning. Yeah. Reminds me of uh, in, in my master's program, one of our assignments was to uh, explain why the New Testament documents are reliable in 200 words or less. Right? I mean, every word has to count, you know. And so, so it is with here. So, so, so key themes I think in this book of Jonah certainly the sovereignty of God. Right? I mean, so we say that and it's almost like, oh yeah, but the sovereignty of God is in everything, and it is. And so, therefore, you would expect to see it here in some really neat and unique ways, especially when you're dealing with, you know, one of your creation is just being a total jerk. Um, he will accomplish all that he determines. And in this book, we see God's power over creation to do just that. He is the sea, is the great fish, there's a vine, there's a worm, there's a scorching east wind and the sun. And we have all these things going on in God just controlling his creation to bring about his plan and to put it into place. He has a lot of tools at his disposal, doesn't God? And of course, the other key and key key thing in this, I think, is the grace of God. Right? It's grace is greater than we could ever imagine. Grace is just a difficult concept to get, even for Christians, isn't it? Doesn't grace sometimes remain a little bit elusive to us? Because sometimes it's just hard to believe. Either we are so shocked to hear that someone so evil got saved, or that God will continue to sort of do in our own individual lives the very thing we've been resisting against, he'll just continue to find a way. You know, his love is such that he just continues to do what he has in his power, For the, as I described love recently, you know, is doing something, you know, being able to do uh, for others to the best of your ability, that which is best for them. You know what I mean? And God has a lot of ability. And so the grace of God is certainly, uh, certainly abounding in this book all over the place. And the guy that is the greatest recipient of the grace of God is the guy that is least aware of the grace of God. And I think another key theme in this story is the limits of our obedience. The limits of our obedience. God will expose the limits of our obedience. Right? Every one of us knows where we most easily disobey God, where we are least likely to demonstrate our allegiance and love to Him. It also limits our to our obedience that we don't even know about yet. We have limits to our obedience, perhaps, that we don't even know about yet because we haven't had the opportunity yet to obey or disobey in a particular area. We haven't been put into that situation yet. So there may be places where we're very tempted to be disobedient to God that we just haven't run into yet. You know, a toddler can begin to disobey even at age two, but they can neither obey nor disobey mom's order to not go into the cookie jar that's high up on the counter, right? They don't have the opportunity or the resources yet. They they can't really be tempted by that yet to disobey. Yeah. <laughs> we have to assume there's no furniture in the kitchen. In the, in the... So we do have, so I do think that God is going to expose uh, all of us. We will see the limits of our obedience. And there's a reason why he does that. 
And he will also, God will also expand the limits of our obedience. I think Jonah teaches us God will uh, expand the limits, uh, will uh, expose the limits of our obedience, and he will also expand the limits of our expedience. Because God can use even our disobedience to make us more satisfied followers of Jesus. Why? Because God doesn't just get angry and then leave us in the misery of disobedience. True believers in God, in Jesus, followers of Jesus, will be miserable in disobedience. That's a gift from God. It is a blessing that we should be miserable in our disobedience. Because we assume at some point we want to stop being in misery. <laughs> and get to, we assume that there's a bottom to hit somewhere. Now, I don't think Jonah got that as, we, as well as we would hope. Right? We're sort of left at the end of the book without knowing if Jonah received any sanctifying benefit from the experience that he's just gone through. And however much time it took, I mean, so we read this in four chapters, right? But he gets the command from God and then he disobeys it and he gets on a ship and he starts heading out and he gets tossed at the sea and he gets swallowed by a fish for three days. He gets out again. He's got to go all the way to Nineveh. That's a long ways away from the coast over there in Israel. So, let's take a look... Uh, Briefly through the various chapters, um, over in chapter 1. Let's quickly here read verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So Nineveh is just ugly, <laughs> with ugly people doing ugly things. Not physically ugly, yeah. I, heard, I didn't do the research, but I heard that they were especially adept and advanced in the uh, uh, torture arts. Mm. Torture. Yeah, they would be. I mean, if you think, like what I said a few minutes ago, where they pulled their arms and legs off one at a time. Yeah, there are just pretty creative ways of, of doing evil, performing evil acts. Yeah, there's no, there's no, I mean, creativity isn't just limited to that which is good, right? Unfortunately. Jonah had to understand the character of God to a certain degree because he ran away so quickly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it would have been easy for him to just say, well, of course, God's wrath is going to fall on the city and I will go there right now. Yeah. He didn't do that. No, well, we'll find out at the end why. Right? <laughs> uh, I mentioned the cruelty of the Assyrians, as Mark just did as well. Let's take a quick look. I'm going to pop over next door a couple of books to the book of Nahum. The prophet Nahum, chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. He's prophesying against Nineveh, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. You know, and they complained about Donald Trump calling some nations a third world hellhole. <laughs> right? What a way to put it. This is. Not that Trump should have said that, but. Boy, I get sick of giving caveats about things. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, uh, <laughs> you just take a, a little bit of a tour through history. I mean, I'm thinking about England. Yep. It was everywhere. 
it's amazing how cruel people were. I mean, today I think we don't have we don't have a clue when it comes to how cruel people can be. Sure. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've read about you know they, they found corpses with the the anklets still around their ankles. Mm -hmm. They were, they, they were there for life. They, yep. and that's how they lived. They, they lived in chains forever. Gouge out their eyes, cut out their tongues, cut off the thumbs and toes of their big, of their right hand. Right, drowning, drowning quarter. I mean, I read Bill O'Reilly's book on uh, uh, um, killing Geronimo, uh, which is all about the American wars with the Indians and all that stuff, and how one of the things that the Indian women used to do when they captured them in a lot, they would hang them upside down naked and just tear their skin off one strip at a time. And if the men yelled, they were considered cowards. And if they were able to hold it in, they considered them brave and gave them an honorable burial. <laughs> It's in our nature to do horrible things. There's a, somebody said somewhere, there's like a little potential Hitler in all of us. You know what I mean? What restrains evil in us? Um, so yeah, there's a lot of, so yeah, so that helps and, us. And there's a lot of uh, deception in terms of how bad people can be. Yeah. Don't, most people don't believe that that's even possible. Sure. But it's that and more now. But sure is. Yep. God wants Jonah to go preach against the city, right? To warn it, to repent or face destruction. And so God is already acting in grace towards Nineveh. Notice he didn't destroy Nineveh. He's acting in total grace. He's sending a message. God is sending a messenger to those people. Those people that tear arms and legs off and kill people and heap up dead bodies in the streets and stumble over dead bodies and find inventive ways of making people endure pain. God's, gonna, God's giving them grace. And this is Israel's number one enemy. You know, right now, Jonah knows this. Okay, So I mean... Yeah, Jonah's a jerk, but we begin to begin to connect with him a little bit, you know. Um, so <laughs> Jonah goes in the exact opposite direction, right? God knew the limits of Jonah's obedience, and God is now exposing the limits of Jonah's obedience. What what limits our obedience anyway? What what are some of the things that limit our obedience if we're honest? In Jonah's case, it's fear. Not my Jonah's. What about us? Well, for us, it's fear too. Yep, yep. Fear is a big one. Yeah, our culture. culture us. Yep, in what way? It kind of goes with fear. Certain things are, are considered normal. Yep. Uh, and, and we seem to think that if we don't act normally, then we're violating sort of like standards that are sure. acceptable. I was at my sister's, my sister's hair salon yesterday, getting a haircut, and, and I was talking to my sister about what's coming up in Northbrook Field, and I was just talking about, you just talking about, you know, the, the gay this or that, and she's like, she just remember, she said, I have a worker here that's gay. And I was like, yeah, I said, isn't that the problem? I said, listen to yourself right now. Listen to that level of concern. That we can't talk about these things because there's someone here that's gay. And you say anything wrong with that? Well, no, but it's a place of business. Well, I listen to the women in here yakking about everything. Slandering people, talking about this party and that party. It's just, but you know, spiritually minded people and non-spiritually minded people. So anyway... So Jonah, Jonah, Jonah finds a boat headed in the direction he wants to go, right? And, and this guy quotes, he says, Anytime you want to run from God, expect transportation to be readily available. <laughs> right? Anytime you want to run from God, expect transportation to be readily available. Now, Tarshish is the coast of Spain. You can't get further away from Nineveh. They don't even know about the Atlantic Ocean and other continents across the sea at this point. That's as far as you can get. As far away from God as you can go. We see it happening physically with, with Jonah because it's already happening spiritually with Jonah, you know? And, and there's always the danger that we'll deceive ourselves into thinking God is must, he's okay with what I'm doing. You ever, 
you know, so you make a decision to do something in disobedience to God, and yet in the course of that action, it seems like something good comes about, and you just say sort of, wow, you know, Jonah must have been, hey, but this boat is just what I needed. There happens to be a ship going to Tarshish. I want to get out of here. He goes down and he finds a ship going to Tarshish. And there are times when we're doing, in some sense, it might be something that's questionable to us, and we should pay attention to that, sort of uh, nudge you by the Spirit, and we and we find in the course of doing it, even though we thought maybe it might be wrong, some something good happens, whether we get a raise, whatever it might be. And then we think, we deceive ourselves into thinking, I guess it's okay after all. And, and Jonah, in some way, it, we, we say how, but when you're resistant to the grace of God, then anything is possible to believe. You really compromise your intellectual faculties and your spiritual faculties when you deny everything God has put before us. Uh... So we can re- misread circumstances that very clearly go against God's will, as Jonah clearly does. Right? But as we'll see soon, Jonah isn't getting away with anything, and neither do we. Jonah actually thought he was going away from the presence of God. On the one hand, this is what happens. You live in, you know, you, you can't live in two places at the same time. You, you, you'll tear yourself apart, right? You, you, you have to become almost, you cannot compartmentalize your life so much that you can be one person say, at church and among the brethren, and a completely other person when you're not. Because something's going to happen. Something's, those two systems are going to affect one another. Um, and, and Scripture knows this, right? That's why Scripture says things to us like, when it comes to your job, you know, work not as men pleases, but as unto the Lord Christ, right? Uh, not, not, not giving eye service as men pleases, but remember that you're working for Christ. And so we get these little hints in Scripture. Remember, you are who you are wherever you are. And, and you can't, we can't do this. We can't think that there are places that God is not concerned about or that, but, but particularly in his prophetic ministry, the very instruction God gave him as a prophet, the main role that a prophet has is to go and give the words of God. And there is no escaping into chaos. You can never escape by going into chaos. I say that because in old, Ancient Hebrew and all that whole, that Mesopotamia, that whole area of ancient thought, the sea represents chaos in the ancient world. Period. That's why in the beginning of the scripture we see, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You know what I mean? There was chaos in the beginning. And, and, and we see that God throws this tremendous, and, and that's by the way, in the book of Revelation where it talks about a sea of glass. You see that the, the chaos has been completely calmed. All right? There's this reason why that language is used. You have complete utter calm now. That's what the sea of glass is. You know, we're casting down our golden crowns around the glassy sea. You know, shalom and peace has been reestablished once and for all and forever. So that God hurls a violent storm. You know, think of the old, he just hurls this violent storm at Jonah. And, and though Jonah thinks he's safe sleeping in the boat, right? Because disobedience makes us stupid and unaware of the immediate danger that we're in. Right? Because like I said, when you act stupid, you get stupid. Stupid is as stupid does. <laughs> but the pagan sailors are greatly afraid, right? Because these are sea, these guys are, these guys are burly, seaweedy, smelling, rugged men. This is what they do for a living. And they're terrified of what's going on. Okay? And the captain has to go wake him up to pray. He's out to sleep in the bow of the boat. And it's, it's interesting too because, um, it, it's like the storm started, right? The mariners were afraid and each cried. They hurled the cargo. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. And the captain had, what are you, wake up. What are you, crazy? They're all praying to their gods and doing what they think they should do, see? Now, 
What does Jonah do? Jonah doesn't pray. Jonah doesn't pray. He tells them to throw him into the sea. But they said, what do we do? How do we, how do we, what are we going to do? How do we get this thing to calm down? They called out to the Lord. And, and, and so, and, I'm sorry, Jonah says, hey, you got to throw him into the ocean. He doesn't even pray. Um, you know, it's just interesting because of, you know, the fact that they had asked him who he was. You know, we'll see his hypocrisy, right? When he says, oh, I, 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 I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God who made heaven and earth and dry land. Really? Uh, we'll get to that some more. I mean, we're a total hypocrite, right? I mean, how can you respond that way? Who are you? What's your occupation? Oh, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. Right? It's, it's, it's hysterical. But, you know, you can get very lost in your sin. I mean, David had to have known what he was doing. I mean, he clearly knew what he was doing. You have to know what you're doing to plot and scheme the way David did. What David did was profoundly evil with Bathsheba and Uriah. Right? I mean, and then to have a parable told to him, and, and he, he says, that guy deserves death or whatever. And it's like, that's you, dude. That's you. So we can get lost in it. We can get lost in it. Um, so, <clears throat> Hebrews three one right. Uh, encourage one another yeah. day after day as long as still call today, lest anyone of you yeah. fall into the deceitfulness. That's right. That's right. Thank you. So you know, Jonah would rather suffer the consequences of his own stubborn will than submit to God's. Let me see verses fourteen to sixteen. Uh, Therefore, they did call out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its uh, raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice. So you see these men acting more godlike and Christian and repenting than Jonah. And then verse seventeen, right? This is where this is where the book is well known for. Against Mark, the Lord had appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. He had appointed. He didn't do, do, do it at that moment. Literally, he had appointed. Okay? Um, so again, many people mock Christians and others who believe such things, but why should that be? All that's really necessary for such a thing to be possible is a God that's capable of making sea in the dry land. <laughs> if God can make the sea in the dry land, then he can do anything else too, can he? <clears throat> the question is not, is there a fish big enough to swallow Jonah alive? The question is, is there a God big enough to create and command such a fish? Right? Is God capable of doing that? And of course He is. So the Lord appointed this fish. He ordained this fish. He created it for this purpose. Okay? When God created this fish, He did so for the express purpose of swallowing Jonah. For saving Jonah. So whenever God made that fish, I don't. He probably didn't create it instantly. Whenever it was first birthed, that was going to be its mission its whole life. It was going to be Jonah's deliverance or whatever else that it did. Now, chapter 2, finally we see Jonah pray. Now, you get the sense that, uh, so he, pray, he says that he prayed uh, to the Lord his God from the belly of the big fish. He, but he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, out of the belly of Sheol, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep. Into, so he's, he's saying this is when he prayed. So I'm seeing Jonah gets tossed into the ocean. All of a sudden he's praying as he's sinking, right? It's before he starts <laughs> sucking in seawater. And he's praying. And, and it says here that, um, uh, well, the irony too of this, God, he goes from the belly of Sheol to the belly of the fish, right? From certain death to deliverance. Keep that in mind while this is happening too. Mm-hmm. He's delivered from death here, right? And he's saying, he's saying this, I'm driven from your sight. And it's interesting, he says, um, 
Uh, well, so, so he's praying, sort of as he's descending, as I read this, and the fish was the answer to his first prayer. All right? So he prayed and was swallowed by the fish, and we'll see in a minute, he prayed and was vomited by the fish. All right? I, I think the fish heard him praying and thought, I can't listen to this idiot anymore. <laughs> Andy tastes awful. So, Pat, yeah. Did you, did you do any research on like maybe like how he stayed alive in the fish's stomach? Because that to me always, for some reason, is a sticker. Yeah. Like, how does this guy live for three days? And I know it could be Friday night, one minute before Saturday, mm-hmm. and then gets vomited out. But still, that's 24 hours and two minutes. In a fish with no air, how yeah. does he do it? Probably the same way God made a fish that's big enough to, you know. I, I, I guess the same question goes: is, is is God big enough to keep Jonah alive in circumstances he yeah, shouldn't I be alive? I'm not, I, I, I should. But you think I about? I should answer my own question like that. You know, like if he has a fish that like, yeah. swallows him exactly, then he's going to figure out a way for him to stay alive in the stomach. Of and the if fish. you Google, you will find there is record of they, at least one person that did survive for some time in the whale of a, of a, a in the stomach of a whale. And for like a little over 24 hours, he was really in tough shape when he came out. Skin was all bleached. And, you know, it's just... So, yeah. Wow. He scared the people in Nineveh to repent. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know. I'm going to say that when uh, I was first saved, I suppose because of my faulty instructions in the you know Roman Catholic system, um, it was taught to me that Joan and the Will was just a fairy tale, basically. Mm. It had some significance... It's literature, but it wasn't reality. Anyway, he showed me a picture, a literal picture from a, a newspaper from Halifax, Nova Scotia, which mm. is where he was from. Mm. And off the coast of it, a, a person had been swallowed by a whale. Mm. And it actually showed the person yep. himself that had gone through that experience. Yep. It's sort of like a proof that yep. it's possible that it, it can be like sea creatures that are large enough to yep. contain a, a body yep. and a body and it could survive. Yep. But, e- but even if not, I mean... It's, it's not possible for someone to raise from the dead. You're not going to run into that anywhere, right? And, and so, so it's, it's, it's supernatural. It's God. He has a natural order to things, what we call a natural order. But to God, the natural order is maintaining and then doing whatever else he wants. So God can contravene. He can intervene on that order and just do different things. And then to direct the fish to... That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. So, <clears throat> in verses four and seven, both places you see in verse four and seven, it's interesting. Jonah mentions the temple. He says, "Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." And then over on in uh, verse seven, he says, uh, "When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. I remembered the, the Lord." Now, if you remember from Solomon's dedication of the temple back in First Kings chapter eight. We have there a little sense of where this might have been on Jonah's mind. In verses 38 to 40, he says, Whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hand towards this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, only you know the hearts of all the children of mankind that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that goes to our fathers. In fact, so much of that dedicated prayer is about that. If they're in famine, if they're in pestilence, if they're defeated, if they turn and look to the temple and pray, because the temple is the presence of God. So, on the one hand, Jonah thought he was fleeing away from the presence of God. Now he suddenly remembers. He says, I remembered the Lord, how very present he is. Now, did Jonah depend? Did he confess any wrong here? Is it sort of assumed in the text? I don't know. I don't know. He's just He prayed for deliverance, and he certainly got saved in that respect. Uh, 
just a little sort of quick side note on the fish. The irony of the fish being the means of deliverance and fish being the ancient symbol of Christianity was just too difficult to ignore for me. Now, I don't think this is part of God's intent and because the fish symbol is not inspired like the Word of God is, but it's interesting that the fish, <clears throat> the, the reason why you see the fish symbol, and you, you may already know this, but it comes from the Greek word for fish, which is ichthys, and it basically forms an acrostic, and that acrostic basically means Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Because that's why when you see the fish, that's what you're seeing. It's a symbol for the word fish that is in Greek. And then we see that uh, Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jesus is the deliverance from the waves and billows of wrath's God against, uh, God's wrath against sin. Uh, Jesus will make his disciples fishers of men. Uh, Jesus provided a coin for the temple tax for Peter out of a fish's mouth. You're the miracle of the five of the the five uh, fish and the two loaves, and it's also interesting that the name Jonah means dove. Although on the one hand it doesn't make sense, on the other it was a dove that was released from the ark and not returning, and indicating that God was pleased that His judgment had been fully sort of borne out. So, I just saw those little things in there and said, "Those are so neat. You got to share them." You know what I mean? It, it's 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 like um, it's like biting into a brownie and finding out that there's fudge in the middle. You know, when you think of you just just getting the brownie, it's like this. Neat little thing going on there with fish. Right? So, we come over to chapter 3 where Jonah preaches. Okay? And it's amazing. This is really a short message. So, in English, it's what? Eight letters? Uh, eight words, I mean. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. That's the extent of the message. It's actually only five words in the original language. Okay? So it's translated, it requires eight words to translate it into English, but there's only five words in the Hebrew language. This is quite an act of grace that people would believe with such sincerity. Look at verses 6-9. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may return and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Wow. I like that old Southern Gospel hymn the Gaithers used to sing. The sweetest words he ever said were, I forgive. Death sentence was then wiped away and I could live. Well, I like the part where he told about a mansion he will give, but the sweetest words he ever said were, I forgive. And a little message like that, that long. So, and remember how wicked these people are. This would be like, if, if you've watched The Lord of the Rings, all this is like, like seeing the orcs repent. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know, it'd be like the orcs throwing down their swords and everything, and just, just going with Gandalf to... To, you know, back to the Shire to smoke uh, pipe weed, self farthing pipe weed. So there's none beyond the saving grace of God, right? And we, and it's, that same guy, Stephen Davis, says, Imagine if we will one day meet converted Ninevites in heaven. Yeah? And it's unfortunate, like 120 years after this or something, Ninevite got completely overthrown because that, that, that great. Sort of revival, I guess, if you want to call it that. Though it's not really a one-on-one analogy in comparison. We don't know what... I doubt very much they fell into... I doubt very much they became part of the Hebrew covenant and began to worship God and follow follow all the Levitical prescriptions for priesthood and everything else. But they turned away from their sin. The best way that they sort of knew how. They turned away from what they had known was evil. 
when he said, uh, let everyone turn away from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Remember what we talked about what they did, all the horrible things. And they did. I mean, these people that, that, that butchered and murdered stopped doing it for a while, a generation or two maybe. Right? But this is, this is amazing. But this is absolutely amazing that this would happen. It was such a short little message. And it's like, you know, Jonah doesn't want anything to do with this. And there's a reason why we're going to find that now, right? We'll find out why Jonah. So over in chapter 1 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. <laughs> right? He was angry. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's exactly what you were referring to before, Todd. That's why he left. He knew that God would end up having mercy on him. He knew that they would repent. He knew that at the preaching, because he knew that God, when God prophesied something, it was going to happen. He knows the nature of God and the character of God. And yet... I mean, this is sinning with a high hand in a way, right? He just, nope, you're going to forgive him. I have nothing to do with it. Find someone else. I'm going as far as I can the other way. And all the irony of what happened between that, of using the very place that was the place that he was rebelling in becomes the place of his deliverance. And sometimes that happens. We have to go, we end up in total and utter chaos before we get delivered. You know what I mean? We think that the thing, the chaos that we're living in, if we just get it right, is the deliverance. And we continue to try to perfect ourselves in the chaos, which is just insanity. And we can see it in addicts, all right, of all kind. But we need to see it in ourselves, too, all the attachments we have to things in life. It's very easy to think, if I can just get this right, I can, if I can just manage the chaos, I'll be okay. There's no managing the chaos. So, in the text, so it says... But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, but quite literally, Jonah says it was exceedingly evil. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah that God would do this. <laughs> He's a mess. Now, he didn't mind that God was gracious and slow to anger when his skin was slowly getting bleached in the enzyme of the fish's stomach. He seemed to like the grace of God then and there, right? He seemed to be good with the grace of God there. Glad that God was slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But then there's a little clue in there. There's a little clue in here. It's not this what I said when I was yet in my country. I think that's very key there to what's going on in Jonah's head. It goes back to what I was talking about before, about Israel's main problem throughout all their history. They were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. I mean, he didn't. God says this in Deuteronomy. Look, I didn't choose you for anything in yourself. You know... The, 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 written between the lines is, believe me, you disgust me, okay? I didn't choose you for any particular thing, but I set my affections on you and did this to make a people for myself. Why? So that they could be a light to all the world. So that they could be the example of how does God deal with a people? And what does he expect? And and that was Israel's call. But of course, as I said, they completely, they completely denied. That's why it says in Luke 2, we read about Luke 2 or 3 where it talks about Jesus being a light to the nations. You know, my country. Now, he may be the only preacher in history to be angry that his audience repented. <laughs> Angels are rejoicing in heaven. Jonah wants to die. 
Right? He says, I, I just, I, I, Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. And God just says, is it, is it right for you to be angry? Right? Who in the New Testament does Jonah sound like, by the way? Can you think of anyone? Thank you. Jesus tells about the, the people that the guy hired. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Hours of the day. Yep. That's right. Yep. Where he says, "Am I not allowed, not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me?" Right? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? Yep. Who else? It's a it's a, it's a parable in the New Testament. Yeah. I have a guess. Yeah. Peter, who didn't want to go to the Gentiles. Okay, that's a good example. Didn't want, yeah. Didn't want to eat the uh, unclean yep. that were put down on the sheep. Yep. Yep. Though he did it, and though he did it out of fear, he did that out of fear. You know, it says right in Galatians, he was fearful. He didn't want the. It wasn't the same spirit as Jonah. Jonah hated them, right? How about the, the older brother and the prodigal son? He despised them. He was this this son of yours, this profligate who wastes your money on whores and and profligate living and and and, and prodigal living and everything else. You you kill the fatted calf, right? And Jesus was doing the same thing. He was teaching in that he was teaching in that sermon about Israel's misdirected attempts at understanding who God is, particularly the Pharisees, right? Who he always was dealing with. But so, yeah, to a certain degree, Peter. But Peter did it out of fear. Peter, well, Peter, fear was a big motivator for Peter. That's why he denied Jesus out of fear. You know, self self protected, self interest, right? Well, he denied, he, yeah. Even a good Samaritan, a little bit. I'm sorry. Even the even the good Samaritan, right? I mean, in one sense, uh, you know, Israel wasn't willing to help anybody. Right. You know, oh, passing by. And... The first message Jesus preached in the synagogue was going to be thrown off a off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Right when he said, you know, in in, in the days of whenever, in, when when there was uh, Elijah, there was a lot of widows in Israel. But who did Elijah go to? Went to the Samaritan widow. Right? And then he says, there were a lot of people with leprosy. Who did he go to? It was a name in the leper. And up to that point, they were, this guy's great, you know? Then he starts talking like this, the Samaritans, right? And they take him out, they're gonna throw him off a cliff. And Jesus just walks through him and says, not anything happening today. You know, imagine, imagine, uh, imagine the Westboro Baptist Church going to the North Brookfield gay pride thing that's coming up, right? And all the people repent. So they're holding signs that say repent and God hates fags and everything else that they hold up, right? But they have a sign that says repent. And the, in the, in the, in the drag guys, they, they suddenly put on men's clothes. They wash off their makeup. They burn all the pride flags and they start sort of just falling down and, and, and repenting before God. And the Westboro Baptist Church wails out in anger. That's what's going on here with Jonah. Alright, and then over in chapter four, the plant and the worm. <laughs> So there's more irony here, right? So Jonah is fully immersed in all the miraculous works of God as he demonstrates his authority over all his creation, right? But look what Jonah's missing. He's missing all this wonderfulness about God because of his attitude. He's just assuming that God ought to be doing these things for him, you know? Instead of, you remember when the disciples were in the boat with Jesus and he calmed the storm and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they feared him, you know, and they had this, that's kind of the same response that those pagan sailors had. It's like, there's something going on with this type of a being that can do this. But Jonah's just sitting there miserable. Just missing out on everything God's doing right around him, right in front of him. Right in the midst of it. Right? And so, and what's Jonah doing? Uh, so, it says in verse 5, Jonah went outside the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. 
He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would happen to the city. Right? So he's watching to see maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will still destroy him. Right? He preached a message and they repented. Instead of staying there in the city and, and like, all of a sudden being friends with the people that wanted to kill you, you know what I mean? Finding out that they're, he goes and he sits outside the city, he sits under the shade and he watches the city hoping maybe there's a little fire and destruction coming yet. Sick in his soul, isn't he? Um, and then verses 6 and 7, uh, you see that God makes this plant that grows up over the, the, the little shelter that Jonah made and it shelters from the sun. And he's well pleased, of course, right? When the plant suddenly grows, once again, God's miraculous works are wonderful. And then, but what happens overnight? It completely withers overnight because a worm eats it. So it's there one minute, it's gone the next. And he was so angry that he wanted to die. And we, we ask ourselves, you know, is it really possible, you know? Um, you know, I remember 20 years ago, maybe you remember this. 20 years ago, so back in 2003, there was a Republican in Congress who was in charge of the Capitol complex, and he insisted that the menus all get changed so that they no longer have the word French fries or French toast on the menu. It would have to be freedom fries and freedom toast because France resisted the coalition to evade Iraq. Remember that? Wow. Now, at the time, I was at another church. And in that church, we were planning a mission trip to go to France. And there were some people who literally said they would not go to France because they were opposed to joining America and fighting the war and going into Iraq. Literally said that. Right? Which, oddly enough, today is modern, Nineveh is modern day Turkey, modern day Iraq, I mean, right? The irony of that. But they literally said that. There were two or three people. I remember in a Bible study I was conducting. And I'm not, I'm not gonna sign up for that. I'm not gonna go to France. Wow! Right? I mean, that's pretty close to what's going on with Jonah here. That same sense of nationalist pride that gets in the way of, of the gospel. And, and so verse 10, where he says, the Lord said, you pity the plant, which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Right? And, and, and so again, this guy, Davey, says, is it really hard for us to believe that? He says, after all, it appears many people care more about their lawns than they do their lost neighbors, at least on how much time they spend gardening compared to evangelizing. Now, that's not entirely fair in a way, because I think all of God's serious people can take care of their lawns and be concerned with discipleship. But it's an interesting point, you know? Somebody like my lawnmower died yesterday, uh, I just bought this tractor three years ago. So, uh, I had to stop it and get off when it got back on, started up, went forward just a couple of feet and it died. I think the battery died, but I was just like, oh man, so I'm gonna have to spend the money on this and that and that and that. But it was just interesting that that happened and then I read this quote. You're <laughs> thinking about, hmm, okay. Maybe God wants me to give a little extra to missions. No, I don't, I don't believe God works in dropping little breadcrumbs. We don't have a God that drops breadcrumbs. What God wants is revealed in His Word. That's the only thing we know for sure, so. Um, and you know me, I don't believe it. God spoke to my heart and all that thing. But we can fight about that some other time. Um, so he says, And should I not pity Nineveh, the great city, in which more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and so much cattle? And it, and it just ends there. So in, in that right, they don't know their right from the left. He's not talking about little kids. He's just talking about people living in spiritual blindness. All right? I, I remember one time, when uh, my brother was, he got thrown out of the house because he was, you know, drinking and doing crazy stuff. He was living in his Volvo in the driveway. And he needed water in the radiator of his car so it could run and stay warm. And my grandfather asked me to fill it. I said, why should I do that? Look what he's doing to the family, blah, 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 blah. My grandfather just looked at me and said, he's indigent. You know? And he's not capable. You, you got to do that. And I said, okay, well, I'll do it for you, but not for him. You know what I mean? But, but 
But the point was, he, he can't do it. I mean, he said, God said, shouldn't I care for these people whose idolatry has led them to such a place now, right? That they're, 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 they're look at, look at, look at what's going on with them. They can't begin to tell. Why should I not have pity on them? You're, you're freaking out over this little plant. And so Jonah finds out that, as we do, that God's plan is to upset your plan so that you plan to change your plans to become like God's plan. Right? That's what Jonah found out. That's what we find out too. And so the question that God asks at the end here is much more important than whether or not Jonah finally accedes to God's will. It's the question that's important, right? Is should I not pity Nineveh for, for the reasons that I just said over the petty concern that you're getting all freaked out about? And again, isn't it interesting that Jesus addresses the Pharisees by bringing up Jonah, who had the same exact problem. They despised Gentile sinners. So, yes, Jonah is a true story, but he's also an unintendedly, unintentionally living out a parable. You know, like Ezekiel was called to do a bunch of things, lay on his side, walk around naked, burn hair, eat food cooked over dung and all that stuff, because those are all sign acts. Well, Jonah's unwittingly knowing that he's participating in the very same kind of thing. He's like, he is, this is a historical event that also serves as a, a living parable to, to, uh, to point out to the Pharisees, I think, as well, what they were like. It was a perfect thing for him to use with them. And so again, I think we've touched on it and it's time to close, but you just think perhaps to yourselves how this could apply today in culture. Um, again, is it, are we, is it possible that there's anyone out there that the last thing we want is for them to come to faith and be saved or, you know, would we rather support, not even thinking of it that way, do we wish more that we would see them utterly destroyed? Right? Is our thought that we would see them utterly destroyed rather than we'd rather see them come to Christ? Right? And then get destroyed. <laughs> right? So, just to think about that. Alright, Lord, thank you for our time together. We depart now to go up the hill, to ascend that holy hill, to go and be with all your people, the church. And so we want to glorify you there. And we ask that all of these lessons and things we learn have a place in our hearts that we can think about here and there in the midst of all the crazy madness of life. And to remember, Lord, that you are sovereign. Help us to enjoy what we see going on in creation all around us all the time. Uh, evidences of your grace and mercy abound. Help us not to be blind to them. To Christ our Savior. Amen.